0: So here's what I've been asking of the Lord during this season of prayer and fasting. That his presence would increase among us. That the manifest presence of God would be revealed. For those of you visiting with us or new to us um, Every year in January, we gather as a church and set aside 21 days uh, of prayer and fasting to seek the Lord and to see how he might reveal himself to us. We do this because um, he's bigger than our problems. He's bigger than our circumstances. And he asked us, as the scripture we read earlier in Psalm 55 to seek him while he may be found. And so there's much to pray about in our nation, uh, in our culture, maybe in your family, um, in the world. There's much to pray about. And I, I, I get the, the feeling that we don't do a very good job of seeking his face. I think we get comfortable in our own rhythms of life and our own distractions, we've propped up idols for ourselves where we get our significance and meaning and we just go along with Christian as the name, but not Christ as the leader. And this is a time that we dedicate to seek him and to ask him to reorient our lives around him, to realign who we are around who he is to have renovation of our heart, to restructure, to reformat. There's a lot of re's that I like to use to describe this. But I I don't wanna ever be guilty of just doing my own thing. Why? Because I don't belong to me. We belong to him. We're not our own. We belong to him. If you are in Christ, you are his disciple and his word says to deny yourself and pick up your cross. And to follow him. And so I don't want to be known as a person who did it his own way. I'm not Frank Sinatra. I don't do it my way. Oh, I did. But it didn't work out very well for me. And you did too. And if you still are doing it, my question would be, how's that working for you? So I want to be oriented around him and so with that in mind, I have prayed for us as a people that the manifest presence of God would be more fully realized and revealed in our midst. Now, if we're not careful, when we talk about God's presence, we will resort to emotionalism, to uh, goosebumps and spooky things. But it's serious. It's It's a fearful thing to be in the presence of a holy God. Remember, Brother Charles was here with us last November, and he said, as he was reading through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he realized one thing. God is serious. And it's serious for us to approach him. In fact, if if we do it flippantly, if we act like it's our presumption, that it's our entitlement, we might find our hands slapped, or like Ananias and Sapphira, we might find our life zapped. I've always been fascinated with the back and forth dialogue between God and Moses. As Israel, as Israel was descending into sinful idolatry and worshiping a calf of gold that they made for themselves as an idol. This conversation between God and Moses that took place afterwards is fascinating. Brother Curtis has always highlighted it for me and it's, it's almost humorous in certain ways except for it's such a holy thing. It's one of the lowest moments, this idolatry on the part of Israel, of God's covenant people. They've been delivered out of Pharaoh's bondage They've been led out of Egypt. They've seen miraculous provision as they have now come to the mountain of the Lord to Mount Sinai and there they camp and Moses goes on their behalf up the mountain to meet with God. And at the top of the mountain, there Moses and God commune. They talk with each other. God makes covenant with Moses as the representative of Israel. But the people who just a few days earlier had made this claim, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Such braggadocious behavior on their part. All that he commands. Yes, they probably had a stained glass voice as they said it. All the Lord has commanded We will do. There is a hollowness to what they said. Because now, just 40 days later, 40 days, Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days, and now they've corrupted themselves completely. They've spiraled out of control. They've made for themselves a golden calf. Aaron was involved. Moses' is right-hand man. And they are now having an orgy in worshiping this golden calf as their God. 40 days. It's a dark day among God's chosen people. And if that were the only time that this sort of thing happened, it might be somewhat palpable or palatable. Palatable. But as we know, this was an ongoing cycle among God's people. This happened over and over and over. oh, not the golden calf, but idol worship nonetheless. And turning away from God nonetheless. And forgetting what he said nonetheless. And even though claiming all that the Lord has said we will do, forgetting it as if we had never said it and then doing our own thing. This cycle seems to be the wash, rinse, repeat of the Old Testament over and over and over again. It's, oh Lord, we have sinned, yes you have. I forgive you, come to my presence. We worship you, we love you, you're so great. Who is God again? And now we've sinned and we've turned our own ways and now we are idol worshiping and he is over there and he disciplines us because he loves us. And then he calls us back and we repent and oh Lord how we have sinned and he restores us over and over again. The alarming thing for us is that this tendency does not exclusively reside with the house of Israel. It is the tendency of every single one of us. It's a vicious cycle. And it seems that this time, God is still wanting to lead these rebellious people of idol worshipers into the promised land. And he tells Moses that he will allow Moses to lead them, but this time, he himself, his presence will not go with them. He'll send an angel, but he won't go. And in the exchange that occurs between Moses and God, which is, like I said, almost humorous if it wasn't such a serious holy thing, you see the back and forth between God, the creator, Jehovah, and his servant, Moses. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 12. If you'd like to turn, you can, in your device, your Bible, Exodus thirty-three, twelve. 12. I'm reading this time out of the NIV. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Underline the word your in your Bible. They're your people. I say that to God all the time. (laughs) I do, but it's not a slam. (laughs) They're your people, God. Verse 14, and the Lord replied, My presence will go with you. With you and I will give you rest. Not your people, not the nation, not those children that are rebellious, you, I'll go with you, and I'll give you rest. This is God saying back to Moses, sorry, look what Moses says, verse 15, and then Moses said to him, "If, um, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people? See how he associated himself with the bigger crowd. And with your people, unless you go with us. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Now, it's at this moment that I'm holding my breath. What is God gonna say to that? And here's what God says. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. This is why Moses is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. He is pointing the way to what Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins, will do for us. Moses has bridged the gap between God and the rebellious people, and he has saved them, just like Jesus will save us. What an encounter. I mean, it really is a little alarming when you realize that God let Moses talk to him like that. I wouldn't suggest it. He might just strike you down. But it's fascinating, isn't it? That this is the exchange that Moses has with God. And when I say that during our fast, my prayer for us as a people is that we would feel God's presence more, that we would realize the manifest presence of God in a more full and meaningful way, This story at Mount Sinai makes me remember that's a holy thing to ask. That's a serious thing to ask. But what I'm praying for, just like Moses said, is that if his presence doesn't go with us, we better not go. We better not embark on whatever God has has in store for us if we go alone. If we're going it alone, we're in trouble. The only way we will find success, provision, peace, righteousness, joy, success in our endeavors is if God's presence goes with us. So his presence is the difference maker, it's everything. It really is the most meaningful thing in our Christian life. Without it, we're doomed. Without it, we will not succeed. Without it, we will find failure at every turn. Without God's presence, we aren't God's people. His presence is what he promises and that's what makes us his, his presence with us. And so my prayer is that God would invade Personal space, that God would disturb our daily routine, that God would take over our plans, that God would come into our families and His presence would change us, our marriages, and the way we raise our children, and our youth, and our adults, and everyone in our spiritual family, that God's manifest presence would be felt in our church gatherings like it has been this morning, and in our small groups when we gather throughout the week, and in everything that we do as a church that God's presence would overtake our community and our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces, that the presence of God would be the most central thing in everything around us, in our schools and and workplaces, in the things that we do day day, day in and day out and in our city and in our nation and in the world. I'm praying for an invasion of God's presence. Now, some of us have experienced that before. Many of us have but that should never satisfy us to have experienced it in the past. That should never be enough. We're ruined. If you've tasted the presence of God, if you've been there in the midst of his presence, you are ruined. Nothing else will do. I want more of his presence. Centuries after this moment at Sinai, wouldn't you know it, God's people have rebelled. And they are now in exile in Babylon. <clears throat> and God's spokesman, the prophet Isaiah, proclaims a prayer, a petition on behalf of the people because he also is looking for the return of God's presence. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64 in verse 1. Isaiah 64, 1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. Three different times in these first three verses of Isaiah 64, the phrase at your presence is used. In the NIV, it says before you. In the ESV, it says at your presence. It says that the mountains might quake at your presence. And then it says the nations might tremble at your presence. And then talking of times in the past, it says, the mountains quaked at your presence. When the presence of God is realized, there's a whole lot of quaking and shaking going on. There's a whole lot of trembling. Like Moses, Isaiah understood the magnitude of God's presence. He understood the seriousness of it. He understood the necessity of it. The awesome and fearful thing was to have God rend the heavens and come down. To rend, to tear, to rip apart the heavens and come down among his people. And yet, Isaiah, as did Moses, earnestly desires that this would happen. He recognizes the seriousness of it, but he also recognizes that without it, we're doomed, we're nothing. Maybe the most important word in this whole passage is the very first word in verse one. Oh. Oh. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Do you hear the longing? The imploring, the desperate need of. Oh. That you would do it again. Oh, that you would rend these heavens and come down among your people. And just to make sure that we don't miss the emphasis that Isaiah is making, there's an exclamation point put on the end of the, of the sentence. The end of verse two. Boom. Just so we know, this is important. Isaiah earnestly longed for God's presence, for God to come down and to shake things up. Isaiah wanted God to do something that was unmistakably God. I sometimes feel like Christians have a tendency to manufacture the presence of God. And it seems so futile to me. It feels like that we are so good at technology and lights and laser and music and amplification and in-ear monitors and all the setting that we can almost impersonate the presence of God. And it's easy for me to sit here because we don't do smoke, we do have lights. We don't do smoke machines that is we don't do fog machines and i'm not trying to be critical i'm just saying it's foolish of us to try to fabricate the presence of god why would you want to do that i'll tell you why because we want we want to capture what we lost but we're not willing to do the work to get there we want to be in the presence of god but it's easier to just let somebody else do the work and we feel good goosebumps Seemed nice. Wow, that was a nice sermon. Not too long. That was great. Perfect. The worship was good. Picked all the great songs. Loved it. It was so wonderful. Uplifting. I feel so good. Thank you, Jesus. Let's go. <laughs> we have trivialized the presence of God to the point that we think in our Western mindset that we can make it happen. God have mercy. Isaiah wanted God to do something that would be unmistakably God. That's what I want. I want to pour water on the sacrifice if necessary. I don't want anybody hyping me up or cheering me on. Put your pom-poms away and stop telling me what to do. I want God to do something that is unmistakably God. Isaiah wanted God to do it that way. He wanted to have the nations tremble. He wanted to have the mountains quake, and he wanted God's fire to turn up the heat and boil the water and burn the chaff. He was looking for the move of God. He wanted a move like was seen on Mount Carmel when God's one lonely prophet, Elijah, squared off against 450 prophets of Baal. And they had a contest that is also humorous to listen to as Elijah sat over and mocked all the prophets of Baal who were cutting themselves and and doing all sorts of contortions around the sacrifice, asking Baal to send fire down, and he mocked them. And then finally he built an altar with 12 stones and he slaughtered the heifer and laid it on top and he asked for barrels of water, they're in a drought by the way, to go down and get barrels of water and pour it on the sacrifice and they built a moat around the sacrifice and it filled up the moat, it was so much water. And then he stood up and prayed a simple holy prayer and fire from heaven came shooting down and it burned up that sacrifice and it burned up the altar and it licked up all the water. That was an unmistakable God thing. Isaiah was looking for something that would someday be like the day of Pentecost. When as those who were the religious elite had thought they had snuffed out this threat from Nazareth... And they sat there smugly just weeks after they had executed him, thinking it was all done. And 120 were up in a room. They were in an obscure place. No one cared about them, but they're up there seeking God. And all of a sudden, a mighty rushing wind interrupted the festival. And the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And there, this 120 changed the world. It grew to 3,000 that day, and now it has grown too numerous to count. That was an unmistakable God thing. But these moments of God's presence are not just isolated to biblical times, they have continued throughout our history. Too numerous to even count or to declare today. One of the ones that's the famous one in the 1700s was what we call the Great Awakening. In New England, The power of God and his presence was manifest in a rich and powerful way. And Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the fathers of that great awakening, recorded what he witnessed in his own community by saying, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love nor of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. Our public assemblies were then beautiful from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. There have been moves of God since then. Many of us sitting in this room were a part of what Commonly is called the Jesus movement back in the '60s and '70s. That's the 1960s, as Brother Charles would say. Many men that I and women that I deeply respect, even sitting here, were on the cutting edge of what God was doing in those days. I was just a kid growing up in it, but it was fun. I mean, God was doing so many phenomenal things. It led to all sorts of things that were impressive, that were powerful, that were encounters with God. Led to what was commonly called the charismatic renewal where the Holy Spirit was poured across denominational lines. It didn't matter what church you went to. It seemed like the Holy Spirit was invading your place. Would love that the presence of God would do that again. And God continues to rend the heavens over swaths of the globe, including Asia and the Middle East and Africa. In China alone, in 1950, there were estimated to be approximately 1 million Jesus followers. Today, even in the midst of harsh persecution, there's somewhere near 100 million Jesus followers in China. But here's the thing, while we're praying for the move of the spirit to happen again, and we do, and we're praying for our nation to turn back to him, and we do, and we're praying for our government to be righteous and uphold God's law, and we do, there is still something each of us get to experience in the meantime. You see, hope deferred makes the heart sick, and oftentimes people have have, have given up in praying that God's presence would be revealed. They have, they have fatigued, they have wearied themselves. But we have a promise that, that God gives to each of us that even while we pray for these things to be revealed and we pray for his spirit to be poured out and we pray for great renewal and revival in our land and the nations of the earth, we also have the opportunity to have our own little personal revival while we wait. <laughs> I love this about God. He said to Moses, I'll go with you because I like you and I'll give you my rest because you're my man. But those people that you're with, eh? they've kind of, they've kind of ruined it for me. And so Moses could have just said, great, peace out, guys. Me and God, we're going. Can you imagine if he did that? Thank you, Lord, just me and you. We got a lot of Christians that are trying to do that today. Just me and you, Jesus. But he didn't do that. He actually decided that he would challenge this thing with God and say, no, Lord, they're your people, too. What would it do to your reputation if your presence was taken from them? What would it say to the nations of the earth? They're watching. They're watching. And so God said, okay, because you have asked it, because I like you, because you're my man, then I will do as you say. So that gets us up to the point where his presence did go with them. We know it did. Now we find ourselves in a situation where much of the people of God I wonder if his presence is with them. I want it to be. But it feels like it's lagging a little bit. It feels like it's wanting. It's just not quite there. And I feel like that we're in the reverse order of where Moses is. Because while we sit here and earnestly say, Lord, let your presence be with your people, he gives us the next step and says, and I'll be with you too. Let me show you what I mean. Look at Isaiah 4, excuse me, sixty. 4 verse 4, just now in the next verse. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who Remember you in your ways. Now there's a lot of you in yours and sometimes you have to really decide which you is he talking about. Is it us you? Is it God you? Okay, so let's just go back. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides God who acts for those, that's us, who wait for him, God. But now it swits it swips that uh, swaps swaps. Swips, swaps. Right. we get it out in a minute. Verse five. You, God, meet with him, me, who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you, God, in your ways. So he's he's moved the object in verse four. And when he goes to verse five, and now we're talking about God acting for those who wait for him. So while God is withholding his presence, while the people of Israel are in Babylonian exile, because he is disciplining them, he's getting them ready. He's preparing. His plan is still going to be there. But while he's doing that, he still promises his presence for those who wait for him. Isn't that good of God? Isn't it good that God gives us even individually what we desire corporately, maybe before the corporate thing happens? He meets anyone, scripture says, who joyfully works righteousness. Now, you know my definition of righteousness means right relationship with God. And I know it means so much more than that, but I think we get hung up on doing the right thing. And so what I'm saying to you is that righteousness means that we're rightly related to him. So. Translated this way, he meets anyone who joyfully pursues a right relationship with him. When you're doing that, he promises his presence. You don't have to wait for a larger move of God. You can increasingly experience his manifest presence in your life right now, today. It's a promise even before he pours out his spirit on the nation or causes great conviction to come upon our land, or repentance in our leaders. Even before all that happens, you get a revival, and you get a revival, and you get a revival. Just like Oprah. We all get a revival. There's not as much excitement with you guys as there is at Oprah's audience, I'm just saying. (laughs) She starts giving out cards and they go crazy. I just told you that you get a revival and you don't have to wait for anybody that's good news it's as Pastor Ray Ortland says the simple ordinary path of obedience is where we meet him that's where God can be found not with a guru on a mountaintop but right where you are if you're willing you don't need to run from your life it's where God wants to meet you You don't need to wait for ideal conditions. You just need to use the life you do have to remember God and his ways. His ever-increasing presence is available right now for every single one of us. For all those who remember him in his way and for those who joyfully work for righteousness, for a right relationship with him, I am joyfully working towards that. I want you more in my life. I want you to increase. I want to decrease. I want to keep my eyes on you. I don't want anything to get in my way of me fellowshipping you day in and day out of sitting at your feet, of enjoying your presence. I want to be with you. I want to work for that kind of relationship. I get excited because I've been fasting. I may fall over here in just a minute. (laughs) I am getting a little lightheaded just saying, so. Uh, Maybe I'll take a drink of water. While we earnestly pray for God's presence to be revealed on a broader scale, and we need to, I want to, and I am, I want it to change nations. I want it to make mountains quake. I want there to be trembling. I want every, every tongue to confess, every need to bow. I want all those things. And I'm praying for his revelation and his realization. But even before that happens, I've been given the invitation to experience his manifest presence, presence right now. And not just right now, but right next now and write next, next now, and tomorrow, and next week, and the rest of my life. <clears throat> every day, in every way. So let me close with this. What are you praying for in the fast? There's a lot of things that are practical that we need to be praying for. There are loved ones that I'm praying for too. There's breakthrough that I'm praying for in our midst Financially, with health, in relationships. I'm also praying that the Lord would give us more of those in our community that need to follow Jesus. I'm praying that the Lord would send workers, laborers into the harvest for their white unto harvest. They are they're ripe. We need people that are willing to go and be uncomfortable and love them and speak word of faith to them and and just love intentionally. But most importantly, I'm praying that the presence of God would be manifest in our midst, in your life, wherever you are, wherever you work. How aware are you of God's presence? Do you lack awareness? Is it long into the day or the week, or the month before you think, oh yeah, the presence of God's important to me. How often does it come to your mind? How often do you find yourself mulling over, Lord, I wanna be in your presence. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. Life, life forevermore, I wanna be in the presence. How long does it take you in a day before you think? about him and his presence. Do you lack awareness? Are you playing with idols when God is calling you to himself? Have you been over there crafting your own little golden calf? This is where I get all my energies, all my fun. I get to play. It's what I pay attention to the most. You know, we we think about all these things in our lives. You can talk sometimes with people about the craziest things. I can tell you scores, stats about my sports teams and who really cares? I heard that amen. (laughs) But if that's more important to me than the presence of God, that's an idol and he's not where he needs to be in my life. Do you long for God's presence more than you long for anything else in your life? Are you saying to the Lord, like Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, we don't want to go? Is that really the way you live your life? Or do you just go and expect him to catch up with you? Do you just, you know, God will meet me there. Really? Maybe it'd be better if he went with you or if you went with him. Is presence, the presence of God, the difference in your life? When people get around you, do they think, wow, he knows something about God I want to know. He's, he's been with God. He's experienced something I'm hungry for. Do others say that about you? Could it be said of you that you remember him and his way? That he's acting for you because you wait on him. Can that be said of you? That you are joyfully working a right relationship with him? I'm working that way. That's the most important thing. I pray for our church that the manifest presence of God will increase. Will increase among us. Amen.